I'm going to go ahead and call the meeting to order. Uh, uh, Menendez has been held up, so um, I think he may make a statement when he gets here, but we welcome you here. We're sorry to be starting a few minutes late. Two votes were called uh, that were unanticipated. The United States Agency for International Development is the agency that carries out the lion's share of U.S. humanitarian and development foreign assistance. We've invited USAID Administrator Mark Green here to, today to review the agency's programs and resources, as well as the proposed redesign of the agency. Some on the committee will no doubt use their time to highlight the President's fiscal year 2019 budget request. But given that Congress decides funding levels despite the request, uh, really the President's request is is non-relevant uh, to what we'll be doing. I, I don't mean that with any disrespect. So I hope that the hearing will focus on more relevant issues since uh, it will not be part of what Congress takes up. However, I would like to take this time to applaud the administration for requesting to eliminate funds for the Title II Food for Peace program as authorized in the Farm Bill in favor of a more efficient Emergency Food Security Program, or ESFP. I appreciate the administration acknowledging how absurdly inefficient the title, title II of the Farm Bill is, with only 30 cents on the dollar going to food itself, while retaining the EFSP that gives us the flexibility to work in areas that Title II assistance simply cannot reach, areas that are directly tied to U.S. US national security. Finally, I want to thank Administrator Green for the outstanding level of consultation with our committee on USAID's pending transformation plans. It will be helpful to discuss how the plan realigns USAID structure to better focus on core competencies of the agency, such as our humanitarian programs that aid the unprecedented millions now displaced by ongoing human conflict. As part of the rollout of the transformation, USAID just released its new metrics for the journey to self-reliance, a promising initiative to reconnect our development programs with the whole point of why we do them, helping countries grow past a reliance on foreign assistance. There's also been some discussion regarding democracy planning, and given your extensive background directing such program, programming. We should hear today how the proposed structure and metrics will favor democracy and good governments. With that, um, we look forward to your testimony. We thank you for your service. I think on both sides of the aisle, people are uplifted and proud that you're our USAID administrator. With that, if you wouldn't mind going ahead and giving your testimony, any written documents, uh, we'd be glad to enter, enter into the record. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you for your kind words. Uh, thank you also to Ranking Member Menendez and members of the committee for this opportunity to summarize my written testimony. Uh, I'd also like to um, explicitly thank all of you for the tremendous uh, support that you've shown to USCID and the level of communication and consultation that we've had. Uh, my own view is that this has been a very constructive relationship and, and we've done our best to try to uh, bring your thoughts and counsel to the work that we do. And in particular, uh, although uh, I do not take positions on pending legislation, I am delighted at the passage of the Global Food Security Act, and I especially appreciate the leadership of Senator Isaacson and yourself in making that happen. Uh, that adds great certainty to our work, and, and we're appreciative. Uh, members of the committee, the fiscal year 2019 request for USAID is approximately $16.8 billion. 
We acknowledge that this request will not provide enough resources to meet every humanitarian need or seize every development opportunity. Indeed, no budget request ever has. Instead, it's an effort to balance fiscal needs at home with our leadership role on the world stage. Uh, turning to our ongoing redesign, I greatly appreciate the thoughts and input that you and your staff have provided. To date, our team has had 53 separate Hill engagements and 145 external stakeholder engagements as we try to shape what the USAID of tomorrow will look like. I remain committed to working closely with you to ensure that your ideas are, are reflected in this work. In terms of our overall programming, as you know, the world is confronting humanitarian crises in nearly every corner of the globe, and unfortunately, most of them are man-made. Near famines continue to threaten Nigeria, Yemen, Syria, and Somalia. Again, they're all man-made. Ebola has reared its ugly head in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, killing at least 28 people to date. USAID and other agencies have been mobilizing to contain the outbreak, and the news is promising on that front. As you may know, I recently returned from a trip to Bangladesh and Burma, a trip that has special relevance on today's World Refugee Day. As the world knows, Burma's Rohingya community has been the victim of an ethnic cleansing campaign. But Mr. Chairman, I must say that that term doesn't fully capture what I've seen or the continuing suffering of the Rohingya in Burma and Bangladesh. The world owes Bangladesh a huge debt of gratitude for its willingness to temporarily host hundreds of thousands of refugees who have fled there. But the monsoons have begun in those host areas. While we are taking whatever steps we can to assist, sadly, the first casualties have already been reported. We will continue to do our part to help meet their immediate humanitarian needs including in preparation for the cyclone season, which we know will be coming. We're also forging longer-term plans with the State Department and others to try to deal with some of the deeper problems that I have seen. Of course, Burma is not the only place where religious minorities face deep hardship. Last October, Vice President Pence announced a new policy to expand assistance to religious and ethnic minority communities in the Middle East that have been devastated by ISIS and other terrorist organizations. This policy is in line with America's long tradition of standing with persecuted and vulnerable ethnic and religious minorities. Northern Iraq was once home to large communities of Christians, Yazidis, and other minorities. Many of them have fled their homes or fled their country altogether in the face of violence and threats of violence. We are committed to helping create the condition for those communities to return safely to their ancestral lands. Under the President's leadership, we have already channeled tens of millions of dollars to the region. However, we know the need is far greater, and we must do more to meet the urgent needs of these endangered communities. At the Vice President's request, I will soon to return to Iraq to meet with leaders of some of the suffering communities. I will then report back with a plan of action to accelerate aid to those in greatest need. This is a top priority for the administration, and I know it's a top priority for many members of this committee. The crises that we face, like persecution and threat of famine, are not limited to far-off corners of the land. A deep crisis is unfolding at this moment just hundreds of miles from our own borders. Our fiscal year 19 budget request includes funding for democracy and governance programs in Venezuela that support civil society, human rights organizations, 
and the free flow of information. Our focus on Venezuela is more than warranted. The situation there is worsening by the week, and its effects are impacting the entire region. At the Summit of the Americas in Peru, I heard stories suggesting that the effects of the flight of Venezuelans are now being felt as far north as the Caribbean. Last month, we announced an additional $18.5 million in bilateral funding to Colombia to provide Venezuelans temporarily residing there with urgently needed services like school feeding programs, mobile health services, and other logistical support. And we know the needs are continuing to grow. In the midst of all this, USAID is working hard to apply the lessons we have learned from our past experiences. As many of you are aware, we have encountered challenges with the Global Health Supply Chain contract, which was awarded just before I joined USAID. Since my earliest days at the agency, we have monitored performance of the contract to ensure that our implementing partners meet the standards and requirements that are set forth in that award. I know my team has briefed your staff on the project, and we pledge to keep you informed. I'm also committed to raising standards of accountability and apply lessons learned across the board, even hard ones. To that end, we have made a concerted effort to address all the audits from GAO and the Office of the Inspector General. Just six months ago, we had almost 100 backlogged recommendations. I then set an ambitious goal of closing all of them within six months, and I'm proud to say that we achieved that goal before the end of May. We are fully committed to staying on track with these audits going forward, and we have put in place a number of procedures to help accomplish that goal. We're creating a stronger audit function within our office of the CFO to ensure that everyone involved has the support they need. We're also instituting agency-wide training and performance metrics for our leaders. Finally, I would like to say a brief word on recent published reports of sexual abuse and misconduct by international aid workers. Needless to say, like you, I am deeply troubled by these allegations. Such sexual exploitation or misconduct violates everything that we stand for as an agency. I have met with partner organizations and I have made it absolutely clear that USAID will not tolerate sexual harassment or misconduct of any kind. We have distributed to your offices and uh, released publicly in the last 24 hours a summary of the aggressive actions that we have taken so far, but please know that this is an issue I'm personally tracking and will stay on top of. Again, I've made clear to our partners and fellow donors that we will do whatever it takes to uphold our values in the workplace and through our programs. Thank you again, and Mr. Chairman, uh, I welcome this opportunity and welcome your question. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much, and I uh, appreciate your testimony and service. With that, I'm going to turn to, I'm going to reserve my time. Um, as I normally do, and turn to Senator Coons. Um, thank you, Chairman Corker. Uh, and as you may well know, uh, Administrator Green, we're in between two votes, so um, I would expect many other members, including the ranking member, will be here at some point when those votes conclude. But I'm grateful for the opportunity to proceed directly to questioning much more quickly than I thought I might otherwise. Uh, it is always good to see you. I am grateful uh, for your lengthy service to our country, both as a member of Congress, as an ambassador to Tanzania, and now as USAID Administrator. Uh, and I, I want to specifically thank you uh, for your clear voice uh, on the human rights uh, crisis of the Rohingya uh, later today on a bipartisan basis. The Senate Human Rights Caucus that I co-chair with Senator Tillis uh, is hosting an event about the Ro Rohingya and continuing our effort to try and elevate uh, the focus on that. 
um, and the clarity of uh, your responsiveness on uh, concerns about uh, sexual abuse and uh, what's going to be done within the uh, USAID, uh, within the agency you're charged with leading around that, I just want to celebrate. Um, let me just say broadly, um, not directed at you, Mr. Administrator, um, that it is very frustrating to me as an appropriator uh, responsible for the State Department and USAID that the Trump administration once again ignored the will of Congress and submitted a budget request nearly identical to the previous year, um, which was last year rejected on a bipartisan, bicameral basis. Um, and the budget request, um, I th I'm concerned about the message it sends about the value of democracy uh, because it significantly underinvests uh, in democracy. Uh, and I think that sends a bad message about our values around the world. Um, I'm going to work with my colleagues on the State and Foreign Ops Subcommittee to reject some of these cuts to development and diplomacy. Um, and I look forward to uh, working with you to make sure that uh, what we do can be well and appropriately spent. Let me focus my few questions on the Sahel um, and um, the challenges I think we see in a number of places on the continent. Uh, last year, the administration pledged up to $60 million in support of the Sahel G5 Joint Force Initiative on top of other security assistance. Uh, and in April, I uh, led a bipartisan delegation that visited Niger and Burkina Faso, uh, along with Senators Flake and Booker, Chair and Ranking of the Africa Subcommittee. And I came away convinced gains made by the G5 Sahel Joint Force uh, will not be sustained uh, without comparably strong investments in development and democracy. Um, do you plan to increase funding for democracy and development programs in the Sahel to address the underlying um, sources of instability and fragility in these five states? Uh, and have you been consulted in the interagency process regarding the development of a comprehensive approach to stability in the Sahel um, that would partner development and democracy programming with security programming? Thank you for that question. Uh, I, I share your interest in and concern for the Sahel. Uh, I am planning on making my own trip uh, in Niger as the current country that we're planning to visit in coming weeks. Uh, what we've tried to do so far is to, first off, map all of the projects that we have going on in the region, and there are many in different sectors, and then try to do a better job of pulling them together. But you're right in how you characterize the challenges that the region faces. It is vulnerable to um, uh, chronic shocks that very quickly bring about humanitarian crisis. Uh, we are certainly supporting the region through our humanitarian programming, but part of this is we all want to get in front of it. And, and so in our redesign, as you know, we're trying to strengthen the resilience portion of our humanitarian work and I can think of no better place to focus that resilience work than in this region. We currently have some important promising programs underway. Uh, this is a President's Malaria Initiative country, uh, and I'm looking forward to going to see that in action as well as a Feed the Future country. Yep. Uh, we are working on strengthening uh, democracy and civil society. It's a, a big battle. There's a lot of work to do and a lot of threads to pull together but it is something that is very important. Uh, I recently met with the ambassador uh, uh, to Niger. We had some conversations. I learned more about uh, the work that's being done by the G5. A lot of the work that they have been doing has been security-led, and security is awfully important, but long-term security requires strength of governing institutions, and so that, I think, is the piece that's important for us to be working on. I've also heard that the, um, a number of countries from the EU 
are strengthening now their development side of work, which is good news. So as I head to the region, I plan on working closely, reaching out to our partners and, and looking for ways to coordinate and leverage each other's um, investments. Uh, interestingly, uh, Brussels is opening uh, a stronger development presence there, and uh, so is uh, Luxembourg and the Netherlands. So I think there are some real possibilities, but as you point out, these are, in many cases, uh, largely ungoverned spaces, and there's a lot of work that we need to do. Well, I had um, some lengthy conversations uh, just yesterday uh, with Senator Graham uh, and, and with your immediate uh, predecessor. Uh, and I've talked to a number of members of this committee. Um, I, I think we should be making an effort towards an authorizing uh, structure for fragile state uh, partnership uh, with um, some of our European allies, uh, hopefully uh, with a strengthened DFI that can help uh, crowd in private capital, but frankly led by the development mission uh, you're responsible for. Let me make two more brief comments, Go ahead. Chairman. If yeah. I, might, I see the press of other questioners. Perhaps. Meeting may end, end very shortly. So. Um, just briefly on Niger, you know, the population is 70% illiterate, 40% uh, of female primary school students don't reach sixth grade. Um, I, I hope you will consider more dedicated education funding in Niger. Uh, I also had some questions about um, opening a USAID permanent mission in Niamey because I think it's difficult um, for staff located in, in, in Ghana or Senegal to really grasp and, and engage in terms of what's on the ground, and I hope through appropriations to give you the tools to do that. Um, let me just ask about rescissions to the Complex Crisis Fund, because mm -hmm. um, that may be a, a, a live issue this week uh, here in the Senate. Um, USAID's used the Complex Crisis Fund uh, for eight years to respond to emerging or unforeseen crises in more than 25 countries. I think it's a valuable uh, prevention tool. The pipeline is very small because it gets uh, spent. Um, and as part of your transformation efforts, you've proposed creating a Bureau for Conflict Prevention and Stabilization. Uh, but the administration proposed rescinding $30 million from the Complex Crisis Fund, a proposal we may well, well vote on uh, shortly. Um, are you concerned about the proposed rescission uh, to this fund, and, and are you concerned that you're prioritizing conflict prevention uh, and the, this new bureau creation at exactly the same time we may be zeroing out the primary account USAID uses to deal with conflict prevention? Uh Thank you for the question. First, as a general matter, obviously we will implement any rescissions that are passed by Congress uh, applicable with law. Uh, uh, look, we'll never have all the resources that we need to take on every challenge and seize every opportunity. Uh, we will work as best we can to make the resources that we go that we have go as far as they possibly can to uh, deal not only in uh, the immediate region of the Sahel but more broadly with a number of challenges that we see. Well, thank you. I appreciate your professionalism and uh, you're in an awkward spot in terms of the priorities. Um, you know, I'll just close by saying, uh, as I mentioned in my opening, that I think uh, the president's budget request, which proposes a nearly 40% cut to democracy and governance funding uh, globally and nearly 60% uh, to democracy and governance funding in Africa um, is a profound misreading of where we should be prioritizing our investment uh, and I have uh, confidence and optimism um, that we'll both be able to provide the resources you need and that you and USAID will do an excellent job of leading on this issue. Thank you, Mr. Administrator. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's, uh, uh, I know Senator Coons and myself both were involved in Power Africa, and we've had the person who's in charge of that on your behalf into the office on a couple of occasions. Um, 
I know there are goals to have 50 million beneficiaries by 2020, um, installed generation capacity of 20,000 megawatts. More than half of the connections um, are from solar lanterns, and uh, it's projected that, uh, that about 40% of the required target will be done by solar lanterns. I know that the thrust uh, had been to have power generation that was tariffed and sustainable. How, how, is, how, is, how do you feel about uh, where we're going with Power Africa today? And is the solar lantern component something that we feel like is what we're really striving to achieve? Uh, thank you, Senator. Uh, Power Africa is one of those great tools that uh, I didn't really appreciate until I arrived at USAID. Uh, it has helped to uh, produce more than uh, or $14 billion in leveraged investments, uh, 12 million electrical connections on the African continent, and closed 95 projects. So it's a great, uh, a great tool that we have. We've recently expanded its reach through MOUs with the government of Israel and the government of South Korea. In terms of the approach to technologies, it's all the above. We're technology neutral. So, so much of the work that we do is private sector driven. It's the investments that come towards us. Uh, you know, we, we um, uh, work with, with whatever means we can to close deals that will rapidly expand access to reliable, affordable energy for African citizens. Yeah, but are we, are we doing what we set out to do? I mean, this was to be something that drove economic development, people's ability to have health care, education. Um, or are we just hitting numbers and really not uh, driving, driving exactly what we set out to do on the front end? I think we're having uh, enormous success with Power Africa. We are looking uh, to ramp it up and expand it even more. We have Power Africa 2.0 that we recently unveiled. Uh, and quite frankly, we're trying to take the lessons learned and bring them to other regions, uh, power needs in places like Southeast Asia and Asia. So uh, I think it works because it harnesses the power of the private sector but we certainly can uh, be more aggressive in how we push things forward. But I do think it's making a difference. It's certainly a, uh, a tool that is popular with our partners and leaders on the continent. Yeah, I, I think it's uh, an incredible effort. I just want to make sure we're, we're not just hitting numbers, but we're driving what it is we want to really see uh, with so many people in Africa if, uh, if not, I can, having, Senator, not having power. Yeah, yeah and, I, and it's something that, that is important, I think, to... to bring up at this point too. Uh, the import, another importance of Power Africa is the model that we use in driving it. So as uh, everyone on the committee knows, there are a couple of different development models that are out there. There's the model that we put forward, the model to self-reliance in which we incentivize capacity building and reform in our partners. So they take on those conditions that block private investment and stop them from rising. Uh, there is a competitive a competitor out there, the Chinese model, in which they immobilize lots of resources up front, oftentimes with unsustainable debt at the back end. And the competition is oftentimes uh, China offers easy money. And that easy money is alluring uh, many times to uh, uh, countries under economic and political pressure. And so one of the things that I think we need to do a better job of is making clear what the differences are. 
why it makes sense to go with the Power Africa model. Uh, it, it does involve in institutional reform and change and sometimes tough choices, but in the long run, we all know that it brings about sustainable uh, development and, and independence, and we need to make clear what the other side offers and the consequences over, over the long haul. What, I know you've been working some with DOD, and I understand you all have a, uh, a very good collaboration underway. And uh, just for the record, I'd love for you to have the opportunity to talk a little bit about that and, and uh, how you see that evolving. Uh, thank you. It's another uh, lesson and realization since I've arrived at the agency. Our working relationship with DOD is tremendous, it's very close. We're in constant consult, uh, consultation from the stabilization assistance review. We do stabilization work. We're co-located in, in parts of the world to the work that we do back here. We have 23 staff who are embedded development advisors in the combatant commands. And so DOD turns to us all the time for development ideas and counsel. Uh, in disaster relief, they are the ones who make possible so much of what we do. Uh, last year, a, a highlight in, during a moment of crisis for me was the fact that when that second earthquake hit Mexico City, I was asked by the White House to be able to mobilize a search and rescue team immediately. And thanks to the work that we do, our foreign disaster assistance team with DOD, we were able to get uh, a search and rescue uh, crew in Mexico City before breakfast the next morning a sign of how closely we work both in the humanitarian field and in the stabilization field as well. And then, I, again, just uh, because I know this is a major focus, your, your, your transformation efforts, I know you, had, you referred to that a little bit in your opening comments, but would you like, since we have time for you to do so, would you like to expand a little bit on what's happening in that regard? Thank you. Uh, I, I certainly would. Since the... Um, the day I arrived at USAID, my, my uh, top purpose, if you will, is to turn to our staff, solicit their ideas, new ideas, ideas that have been around for a while, and look for ways to essentially build the USAID of tomorrow. We believe that we're the world's premier development agency, and the question that I pose to my staff is, what do we have to do to be the world's premier development agency 20 years from now? And that's really what we're trying to do. We've undertaken 27 projects or identified 27 projects uh, into five outcome streams, all led by career staff. And we're working to reshape ourselves in line with the challenges that we see and also reshape ourselves and our programming in line with the tools that we have and the opportunities that we see. And so while we're still in the process, we're in the phase that we call transformation which is really moving from, from whiteboard to implementation. Uh, I'm very excited about the work that the team has done. Uh, I'm grateful for the input that we've received from, from you and your staff and the staff of this committee. We have uh, lots of work to do, but I do believe that we're getting to a place that will really extend our reach and, and make us more nimble and, and really help us apply development tools in a more effective, more efficient manner. Well, thank you. I'll turn to Senator Menendez. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, in the interest of time, I ask you now to accept that my opening statement be included in the record. Um, well, yeah. Uh, Mr. Chairman, for now, I'm going to ask the, majority, the Democratic leader to object 
uh, while hearings are taking place to votes on the floor. Uh, some of us have to cast votes. And the reality is, is that it is unfair to members uh, to have hearings going on while votes are going on the floor. So that will solve, hopefully, the problem. Administrator, I understand that you and other members of the cabinet are often playing catch-up uh, to policies announced via tweet. But as I mentioned in my opening statement, or the opening statement you didn't get to hear, the president said he would seek authorization that would cut off aid to countries who send asylum seekers to the United States. Do you believe the countries in the Northern Triangle are sending people to the United States? Uh, Senator, uh, I've had no communication from the White House uh, on this subject, so I'd certainly refer you. I'm asking you from your experience. Do you believe that countries in the Northern Triangle are sending people to the United States? Well, so I, I would refer you to them uh, with specific reference to uh, that statement. What I will say is that since the day I arrived and before, we have been working to address those challenges in the Northern Triangle and in the region, which we think may be drivers for those especially unaccompanied I, I, minors I'm coming I'm sorry forth. to interrupt you because I only have limited time and I don't have a good disposition this morning. Mm. Do you believe that the countries of the Northern Triangle, the governments of the Northern Triangle, are sending people to the United States, that they are formally sending people to the United States? Yes or no? Senator, I believe that there are governing challenges in these countries that we can partner with them to take on, which will create the conditions. Do you believe that cutting off aid to countries in the Northern Triangle would ultimately benefit the United States? I believe that all of our assistance programs should serve our national interests. I believe that, that they do. I'm certainly open to reviews of our assistance, which we do continuously all the time. Uh, again, we work hard to make sure that our assistance programs are deployed in ways that serve our national interests you know, as well as helping One our of the things I've always appreciated about you in the past is that you've been a pretty straight shooter. One of the things I don't appreciate about your answers right now, it sounds like you've been ingrained into the State Department speak, which is to say a lot but say nothing. I asked you a very specific question. Let's, let's, let, do you believe that cutting off aid to countries in the Northern Triangle would ultimately benefit the United States? Again, Senator, I believe that all of our aid programs need to be focused on challenges that we see and serve the best interests of the U.S. Do you believe that what we're doing in the Northern Triangle serves the interests of the United States? Our assistance programs? Yes. At this point, I do, yes. Okay. Well, then if you believe that, cutting off aid to them wouldn't be a good thing. Well, the particular programs that I'm aware of that USAID is responsible for, we're obviously not responsible for all the programs, but we believe that they are making progress and helping to create the conditions. You believe that cutting off programs that support economic development and the rule of law reform is in the national security interests of the United States? You know, I, I, will, I will defer to the State Department and the National Security Council for uh, statements on national security interests. Uh, what I will say is that the programs that we do we work very hard to make sure that they serve our interests. Let me turn to another. Uh, all of those answers are unsatisfactory to me. Uh, Administrator, the committee is soon going to mark up uh, the BUILD Act, a bill to uh, reform and modernize U.S. development institutions. Uh, I'm deeply disappointed you were not available to testify on something that is so critical to development assistance uh, in our country. 
Uh, in March, you and I discussed the importance of ensuring a new development finance corporation has a strong development mandate and that achieving development outcomes that improve the stability and sustainable growth of host countries where projects are conducted is what guides the mission uh, on this agency. If the development credit authority is moved from USAID into the new DFC, do you believe that the DFC's financial tools, tools will still be available to USAID's mission and staff so that they can successfully leverage necessary tools in the field? Thank you for the question. Uh, you're touching upon an extraordinarily important point. It isn't simply money that flows into a country, it's what it goes to and what it is that it funds. And DCA is obviously a very important tool. Uh, in our structure, it's owned by our missions and staff overseas. So what we've said consistently is that it's important that that tool continue to be available to the development experts that we have at USAID out in the field. And so what we've done is urge uh, those who are involved in the legislation to reinforce the linkages that will enable that to happen. So that's how I view this. I do believe as a general matter that uh, the concept of a DFI is a, is a constructive one, is a good one. I've uh, written in favor of it over the years. It's making sure that it's closely linked to development that I think will determine So do you success. believe that the financial tools as is structured under the bill will still be available to USAID's missions and staff so that they can successfully leverage necessary tools in the field? Yes or no? Well, I, I, I'm, first off, I know the legislation is, is uh, uh, being considered right now, and, and I know that there are efforts to create... As written, Administrator, strength. as written, yes or no? Senator, as I understand, the legislation is evolving and moving. What we have simply suggested and urged is that the linkages are enshrined, institutionalized as best they can. the most unresponsive set of answers that I have oh. had from someone before this committee. I, now, I don't know whether you're purposely choosing to be unresponsive, uh, but it is out of character for you and is really disappointing to me. Who's next here? Senator Kane. Administrator Green, I want to just continue on the uh, Central America theme. As you know, I lived in Honduras uh, back in 1981 and with many colleagues on this committee, I'm really concerned about the situation on the border now. Today is World Refugee Day, June 20, every year. We uh, think about the needs of refugees around the world. Um, so it's particularly timely with the situation on the border. USAID is a key implementer of programs under the U.S. Strategy for Engagement in Central America. Um, and those programs in the Northern Triangle include a focus on judicial reform, job creation, and violence prevention efforts. I think you testified in response to Senator Menendez's questions that you, th you believe that USAID's focus on those areas is not only in the interests of those countries, but also in the interests of American uh, uh, policy. Would you agree? Yes. Um, how, how do investments in job uh, creation, judicial reform, and violence prevention help the U.S.? Uh, thanks for the question, in, in a number of ways. Uh, first off, uh, creating economic vibrancy and opportunity in those countries is good for uh, commerce, so it's, it's good for U.S. commercial and trade interests. Secondly, it, it addresses some of the drivers that we believe contribute to uh, irregular migration by, by creating opportunities back home. 
Uh, and related to that, taking on some of the challenges like transnational crime um, and uh, uh, you know th those uh, lack of safe areas, safe spaces that families often encounter in some of these countries. So we think that they are not only in the interest of these countries, but but again, we think good for the U.S. So the USAID investments in job creation, judicial reform, violence prevention, uh, help the stability of these countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. Um, but they also reduce the pressure to migrate and leave and go elsewhere. So they're, they're good for those countries and they're good for the United States too. I believe so, yes. Then and I then, echo, um, and, and it would sound like you would as well, the concern that Senator Menendez has, the FY19 budget proposes 30% cuts to these, these funds. Um, a significant reduction in funds that are going to the worthy USAID programs that you indicate. And if those programs are reducing the pressure to, to, for forced migration um, and, and increasing local stability and economic development, the, the cuts of those funds, I mean, it's just sort of a tautology, reducing those funds are going to hurt these nations and also hurt American objectives, including the uh, immigration issue, correct? Uh, Senator, we recognize that tough decisions have to be made and that there's a, a tough balance uh, needs at home versus American leadership overseas. But I want to so let's talk about balance. I mean, if the issue is this challenge of kids coming to the border and this is now blowing up to be like the Birmingham Children's Crusade, children, you know, who in 1963 were attacked by guard dogs and fire hoses, and that grabbed the globe's attention. This is achieving that same kind of torque. Um, and if we can slow that problem down by investing in these regions so that they can reduce violence and grow jobs, um, why would we want to cut the funds that do that, thereby exacerbating the very problem that the administration has created by its self-announced policy? Well, first off, as much as I believe in our programs, I'm not going to tell you that they are the answer, obviously, to the challenges that are there. But in terms of the effectiveness of those programs, I do believe in them. And I do think the, the programs are producing uh, good results, and we've seen it in places like Honduras in terms of the violent crime rate. Again, I recognize that in uh, the current budget environment, tough choices are being made. Uh, so we will do let me ask you this. Here's a worry that I have. If the administration lowballs an ask and then Congress comes in and puts more in because we think it's important, bluntly in some agencies, I worry if we put more money in, I'm not sure that the agency will embrace and carry out the mission as Congress desires with respect to funding. If we are able to provide more money into these programs in Central America to do these worthy things than the administration has asked, Will you commit to us that you will vigorously invest those dollars for those worthy purposes that you've described and, and thereby help us try to deal with the root causes of these problems? I will do everything I can to mobilize those dollars because I do believe in the programs. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Senator Murphy. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Mr. Chairman. Um, 
in your answer to Senator Kane, you referenced this, this budget tension between U.S. global leadership and domestic demands. But that's actually not the story behind the administration's budget, because the budget actually calls for a fairly robust and impressive increase in military spending, uh, one that this Congress has supported. Um, so it's not as if this administration is downsizing America's footprint around the world. It's simply that they are proposing to downsize your footprint in the world and the footprint of the State Department while dramatically upscaling the amount of money that we put into the Department of Defense's footprint overseas. Um, that's something that I simply don't understand because as I read the challenges presented to the United States, I get that there are certainly conventional military challenges that are uh, different today than might have existed 10 years ago. But I frankly don't read there to be um, a, 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 uh, a larger number of conventional military challenges and a smaller number of non-military challenges. So explain the budget through that prism. Why? Um, I, I mean, do you support the idea that we need to dramatically plus up military spending and in order to pay for it, dramatically reduce the spending that is available to you. That just doesn't seem to meet the world that I see. And I don't think it meets the world that you see. Senator, I, I support the president's budget. I believe that tough choices uh, are being made. I, it, I readily admit that we are not able to address every need or opportunity that we see out there. Uh, obviously, our, our nation's national security interests, including our hard power needs, are significant. I think we all recognize that. And uh, as you would imagine, I also believe strongly that the tools that we have and the State Department has are important as well. And so uh, our job will be for the resources that you generously provide, I will make them go as far as they possibly can. I will leverage other investments working closely with other countries. I'll work with the private sector to um, maximize enterprise-driven solutions. I will look to uh, ramp up domestic resource mobilization. So, you know, my, I think my responsibility is and, and will continue to be to make these dollars. I just, I just don't want, I just don't want, I think it's unfair for you to leave this committee or the Congress with the impression that this is about uh, balancing domestic needs with international leadership because it's not that we're spending less money globally, it's that we're, the, the administration is specifically targeting the State Department and USAID um, while, give it, while proposing massive new amounts of money for the Department of Defense. Um, I want to talk to you about one specific uh, part of the world, and that's Yemen. Um, uh, this is now uh, officially the world's worst humanitarian crisis. More than 22 million people, 75% of the population, are living in desperate need of aid and protection. Um, from testimony given to this committee by the State Department, the United States has opposed for a very long time uh, the Saudi UAE coalition's plans to attack Hudaydah, which is the site through which most of the humanitarian aid flows. Uh, our coalition partners ignored our requests uh, and are presently in the midst of uh, launching an attack on that port city, uh, which could result in the complete cutoff of aid um, over the course of the duration of this campaign, which could last weeks, but it could last 
months uh, leading to the death and destruction of uh, massive amounts of, of that country. So um, what have you recommended to the White House regarding the U.S. position uh, on the assault on Hudaydah? Um, and would you recommend that the UAE halt its operations, this, this is primarily a UAE operation, uh, to give negotiations a chance? So we've been in constant contact with our implementing partners, uh, both back here and out in the field. Uh, I can tell you that as of last night, the World Food Program, which is our principal partner there, is still able to deliver food to the port of Hodeidah. As you know, earlier this year, we funded the four cranes that are expanding the capacity of that port. We're watching very, very closely. Uh, what we've done is uh, the State Department has urged all parties to respect the work of the Special Envoy and also to uh, continue to... Well, but you can't respect the work of the Special Envoy in the middle of an assault on you data. There's no work being done by the Special Envoy right now because there's an active military campaign. So are you advising... Uh, the UAE to stand down to give the special envoy a chance, or are you supportive of the uh, assault on Hudaydah? So that, that's a question for the Secretary of State and the Department are of State. Are you concerned the about the humanitarian consequences? Oh, sure, of course, absolutely. We we are we are concerned. Again, I, I in fact tomorrow I'll be meeting with our NGO partners again. We're meeting with them all the time, doing everything that we can to make sure that. Uh, the State Department, uh, the White House, and everybody involved is aware of the humanitarian uh, challenges that are there and doing everything we can to make sure that those needs are, are, are met under extraordinarily difficult circumstances. But also, I'll say, the way that you characterize this is accurate. I mean, this is a profound humanitarian challenge that we're working on right now. We are, I believe, the largest humanitarian donor uh, towards Yemen. But this is something that uh, we worry about all the time. Thank you, thank you Mr. Chairman. Thank you, and uh, Senator Murphy and Young and others, thanks for your leadership. I know um, we've all been pressing, and the thank you for taking the lead on a letter recently. Um, I, look, in fairness, this is my observation. The leader of, the US, of USAID has no impact whatsoever on military operations. And, and obviously, these folks have to quote, support the president's budget, knowing that there's no, it has no relevance to what we're going to do. And I understand that. I think we have a USAID administrator that really is seeking to do the things that people on both sides of the aisle want to see happen in, in, uh, in our aid programs. And I thank him for that. And uh, I'm glad we're not focused much on the budget today. Senator Young. Thank you, Chairman. Uh, Administrator Green, it's great to have you here. Thanks so much for your service. I'll just uh, pick up on Senator Murphy's line of questioning on, on Yemen. And I agree with the Chairman that uh, you really don't have any impact on, on the military uh, effort there uh, in your current capacity. But uh, uh, you did mention Yemen in, in your opening statement, and uh, you know that uh, the Saudi and Emirati-led military operations had led, led to the uh, seizure of the airport by the coalition. Uh, you also know, as anyone who's following this issue knows, of the importance of uh, keeping open the port of Hodeida for humanitarian shipment uh, to continue. From a USAID perspective, what's the key message you'd like to convey to the combatants uh, with re respect to humanitarian access and uh, most especially uh, access uh, that is required through the port of Hodeida? 
Thank you, Senator. First off, there really is no replacement or substitute for the Port Hood data, at least not a, an effective and economical one. So we urge all parties to preserve the free flow of life-saving humanitarian and commercial goods uh, through that port. And we think it's key. Uh, it, it, I said as you were coming in, our best information from last night is that the World Food Program is still able to operate in the port and offload food and vital supplies, medical relief supplies, and obviously that's terrifically important. Uh, uh, but we're in touch with our partners all the time. Also, I know that there's been some prepositioning of supplies. Again, not a substitute, but at least some step to try to ameliorate some of the potential fallout. This, this is by the Emiratis, right? They're characterizing uh, this military operation as, as, as at once a military operation. And also, it's uh, their belief that they can better facilitate humanitarian uh, delivery than uh, the current uh, situation. Or is it the World Food Program? Well, yeah. again, regardless, we, we want to see unfettered access by humanitarian actors. So yeah. right now, uh, the ships that I'm referring to are World Food Program um, uh, ships. But uh, again, we urge all the combatants to respect the humanitarian law and maintain that access. Okay. Last thing on this, uh, you agree, as, as uh, Deputy Assistant Administrator Jenkins testified uh, to us last April, that um, the temporary closure uh, would, uh, would be catastrophic. To build on that, you, would, would an extended closure of uh, Hodeida, in your mind, be, lead to catastrophic humanitarian consequences in Yemen? It would have humanitarian fallout on a very large scale. All right. Thank you, sir. Um, back to the issue of, of um, U.S. assistance uh, through USAID and uh, how we take a different approach than the Chinese are seeming to take. Uh, in your prepared statement, you talk about assistance as empowering people. Uh, the focus is on self-reliance and prosperity, um, on developing partnerships uh, so that people uh, can finance their own development in the future. The U.S. is clearly focused on, on building longer-term strategic and economic relationships with countries. Uh, I would say in contrast to uh, the Chinese approach, it seems more focused on resource extraction and the creation of dependence. Uh, is that a fair characterization? Yes. Okay. Um, if the U.S. is going to compete with China when it comes to development, would you also agree that we have to do better in catalyzing and facilitating private investment? Yes, and I will say in some places there are ways off from, from getting there and having the environment, but absolutely, that is part of the journey of self-reliance. Yeah, I think that's been a real point of emphasis uh, from day one of, of you assuming this role. So uh, in addition to efforts like the Build Act, of which I'm an original co-sponsor, should we be doing more, and what should we be doing, if the answer is yes, we should be doing more, to catalyze this private investment? Uh, so, yes, we should be doing more. There are a number of innovative financing tools that we use, everything from development impact bonds to co-creation with the private sector through uh, what we call a grand challenge mechanism or a broad agency announcement. The biggest thing that we can do is, I think, identify for our partner countries 
the capacity needs that they have and the commitment shortfalls that they're showing and help to incentivize the kinds of policy reforms that you and I would agree and experience shows us are necessary for the private sector to invest in a real meaningful way. And sometimes that means tough choices for them. And so I think that we need to be there helping them. Oftentimes it's technical assistance, but really tackling those policy barriers is oftentimes the most important thing that we can do. And then the private sector enterprise-driven solutions are, are much easier to, uh, to catalyze. Just uh, one quick follow-up. The United States is the largest shareholder uh, in the World Bank. Uh, more than any other country. Are we doing enough to leverage uh, that status and USAID objectives, on, on the other hand, so that we can, we can make sure that uh, everything that USAID is doing is being multiplied by, supported by uh, uh, the World Bank? Uh, so we can always do more yeah. and we can always do better. But we do have a close working relationship. Um, at the USG level, much of it is uh, with Treasury. Treasury essentially has uh, the um, access point in the relationship. But I have met with Jim Kim, and we do talk about broad development challenges and opportunities uh, and even humanitarian response. We can always do more, but I think we have a good productive relationship. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Kane. I've already gone. Senator Booker. Thank you very much. I'm grateful you're here, Administrator. Uh, just real quick, on, I just came back from Afghanistan a, a few weeks ago, um, and it came out in one of our hearings here that we're spending about $45 billion a year in military operations there. Um, the USAID was supposed to receive about $650 million. It's only going to receive about $500 million as we look ahead. Um, I guess I was surprised by what I was hearing on the ground by military leaders telling me there's only so much that they can do, almost talking about a bit of a stalemate, but how important it is to build uh, institutions there, how important it is to build self-reliance there, the kind of things that the military is not doing, which makes me think that USAID's role there is really pivotal. But it seems like, again, this is a theme in lots of the areas I've been visiting and looking at where we're ratcheting up our military expenditures but really ratcheting down our investments in uh, um, helping these uh, uh, places like Afghanistan build to the point where they can be self-reliant. Can you tell me your thoughts on that? Sure. Uh, well, first of all, I'll, my office will get back to you with more granular information just to respond, particularly on the numbers side. But you're right on the importance of the work that we do there. So, you know, our strategy uh, in Afghanistan, which is part of the larger South Asia strategy, is to help foster energy independence, which is terribly important to Afghanistan and its future. Uh, also strengthen inclusive growth so that the economic growth isn't just for the powerful few, but the benefits are spread more broadly. Uh, and in particular, investing in women and girls who have oftentimes been marginalized from uh, the workplace and the boardroom as well as politically. Most immediately, it's uh, the elections and the conduct of credible elections are awfully important there, I think, to give a renewed sense of mandate and strength to the, to the government. It's a hard-working environment, but um, it, it's obviously a successful, forward-leaning, 
uh, forward-looking Afghanistan is in our interest. And, and I appreciate that and, and got to see firsthand the impact of the work that you're doing. I guess what I don't understand is why are, are we ratcheting down investments there, ratcheting up investments on the people that are telling me that this is, uh, uh, for lack of a better word, a military stalemate. Mm -hmm. um, but th that's the policy that I, I'm, I'm concerned with uh, and, and, and have great problems with. My time is running out, so I, I want I'll share your, but I, I take your concerns and we'll make sure that we get back to you. Thank you, sir. And, and I, I want to shift, it's really the same concern. Um, uh, you know, Senators Kane and Cardin joined me in a letter to President Trump expressing our concerns about the freeze on funding uh, when it comes to Syria, um, when it comes to investing in things that provide very basic services um, uh, to folks. And I think the most stunning experience I had, again, was on the same trip to Afghanistan. I stopped in Turkey, and I met with our Start Forward team that's there. And uh, they, they're the folks that implement our, our, the Syrian humanitarian programs, uh, and incredibly important work. I mean, when they're describing it in rich detail, about really keeping people alive, uh, not to mention uh, uh, avoiding the impact of uh, radicalization on populations that are now vulnerable, particularly vulnerable to that. But they, they sort of surprised me that they're literally, uh, they're gonna have to start shuttering their operations. And when you talk to the folks who are on the ground there, you can see this, that they're stunned that they're gonna have to basically leave folks to fend for themselves, dangerous, hostile, not, not having the resources they need. And so, I mean, I left there very angry. How can my country, again, be ratcheting up our military uh, investments, but the basic humanitarian investments potentially could stop us from having to deal with extremism in that region in the future? How could we be uh, ratcheting down on those expenditures? So uh, there are two different pieces to our work in Syria. There's the stabilization work that we do, which has currently been frozen pending review by the White House, although we learned it was yesterday or the day before, 6.25 million was recently released to the White Helmets for the work that they do in Syria. Then there's the larger portion, the humanitarian side, which is not frozen, and we are the largest donor of humanitarian assistance in Syria are doing it in nearly every part of the country. And but you're, familiar with, you're familiar with the Start Forward efforts. Right. That's not, the stabilization side, which yes. is, is, at this point, it is, it, it is being held um, pending review by the White House. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, I, I just do want to say in my last seconds here, I'm really pleased that you went to the South Sudan. Uh, I have a, a lot of grave concerns, as I'm sure you do. Uh, about what's happening there, the, the violence against women, the, the sheer humanitarian crisis that we're having. It's not getting the attention focus, I think. Um, uh, but I understand there's a review underway regarding the assistance in South Sudan, and I just maybe you can conclude by letting me know what's your role within that review and hopefully informing the kind of investments that we're going to making and stop what I see happening again from Syria to Niger, which is a ratcheting down of critical investments that are going to really prevent us from having military investments in the long run. Uh, Senator, I really appreciate your concern. Not enough people, quite frankly, pay attention to South Sudan and the challenges that we face there. So the review that is beginning, uh, we don't have a specific timeline for it yet, is very different than the case in Syria. So it is not slowing down our assistance. We are continuing to operate. But I think the review is appropriate. I, I worry we want to make sure that our assistance there in no way, shape, or form is reinforcing either corrupt behavior or the kinds of behavior and policies that you and I both believe can't continue and go on. 
but the suffering in South Sudan, the need, the near famine that we see in many places is horrendous. Uh, my uh, conversation with President Kier when I was there was entirely unsatisfactory. Uh, I know a number of members of this committee have also uh, tried to push for the peace process. We've heard in the last couple of days that there are signs that the two sides may be talking. I'm skeptical, shall I say, but I do think it's appropriate for us to be taking a, uh, undertaking a thorough review and make sure that we are in the right place in this, and we'll make sure and keep your office brief because this is important to you, I know. All right, thank you. Mm -hmm. Senator Flight. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and uh, I'm glad that uh, that question was asked. Welcome here. Um, I remember traveling Africa 18 years ago, um, Lesotho and South Africa and Namibia with you. And uh, let me just pick up on some of the Africa issues. We're having a transition in Zimbabwe right now. Um, elections will be held uh, July 30th. Um, there are opportunities. AID has done good work even in uh, very difficult circumstances in Zimbabwe, not being able to work uh, with a, a um, government in a way that, uh, that is helpful to the people there. Can you talk about some of the opportunities that will exist uh, to, to do more work in Zimbabwe? Thank you, Senator, and it is fun to think back on that, those trips we did together. Uh, so in Zimbabwe, so much of it comes down to these elections and whether or not they're credible elections. Uh, that will certainly shape our relationship a great deal. Uh, I'm like you, I, I'm very hopeful. Uh, this is a country of enormous capacity and tremendous needs, and with the right leadership willing to take on some of those legacy policy problems, I think there's real possibility there. But I, I think until these elections occur and uh, are, are a credible reflection of the people, it's hard for us to be able to seize these opportunities. We have been working there for a while, continue to, but we've not been able to do it on the scale that we would like largely because of the governing partner that we've had in the past. Right. Well, thank you, and I appreciate the chairman's uh, help and others on uh, making sure we get a Zimbabwean ambassador there mm -hmm. uh, prior to the elections. It's extremely important to be represented fully. Um, can you give a little status update? You mentioned in your testimony uh, Kenya's uh, partnership and their work on the Power Africa initiative. Uh, how are, uh, can you talk about some of the other countries uh, that we're working in and give a status update on Power Africa. So Power Africa continues to be successful in catalyzing and closing private investments. Uh, one of the areas that I'm looking at as we go into what we're calling Power Africa 2.0 is making sure that we are incentivizing the necessary policy reforms in each country. It isn't about just closing deals that are available, it's also about um, incentivizing and, and reinforcing the policy environment in countries such that the private sector can take over so that there are bankable deals. Sometimes these involve tough choices, uh, uh, reliable energy at market rates. Uh, oftentimes countries, especially with populist leaders, are loath to allow uh, rates to float. And yet, what American company is going to make an investment over the long haul if they're going to see rates that are frozen. Our challenge is often that China offers a very different model with lots of money up front, uh, with uh, lines, uh, fine print that lead to unsustainable debt and lines on extractives that we think, you and I think, 
rob these countries' citizens of their birthright of their natural resources. It's a model we're competing with. We need to do a better job, I think, of, of making clear the difference and what it will mean for the young people of Africa. Do you have the tools that you need in your position uh, to, to bring this about? Uh, you know, I, I can't answer that. I, I like the tools I have, but I think until I spend more time on the ground in Africa, you know, seeing what other things may be available, I'm heading into the region. Uh, I'm heading to Niger um, in coming weeks, uh, which is, I think, a, a country of enormous promise. And so taking a look there. Um, again, I, I think for the dollars we invest, Power Africa continues to produce a remarkable return. And um, it's, I think, very, very helpful. But I would like to ramp it up because I think it's important as we have this competing model coming from China. I think it's important that we show um, what American private enterprise and investment can bring. It's been my experience uh, in these countries that uh, they would prefer to do business with us. And they would prefer uh, to, uh, to have a closer relationship um, if possible, but, uh, but China is uh, certainly aggressive in these countries, and the, and the model doesn't do much for the people of those countries in the long term. So thank you, Mr. Agreed. Chairman. Senator Menendez. Uh, Administrator, let me try uh, aspirationally, see if uh, you can be more responsive this round of questions. Um, do you believe USAID and your position are adequately written into the corporate structure of the new Development Finance Corporation? So we have argued for strong linkages, whether those are done in legislation or done in the implementation rules. To us, the key is having those linkages um, as far out into the field, which is where I think the best development comes from. Uh, in the interagency, we have been assured that those linkages will be there, and that's what's important to us. We want to make sure that our professionals in the field, who right now own DCA from our perspective, continue to have that ability to be the pipeline for projects, good, sound development projects. And however that is, is um, uh, crafted, it, that's what's important to us. So uh, I understand your aspiration, but it doesn't speak to me whether or not you think it's written into the corporate structure. I, I would either would say, yes, it is, no, it isn't, or isn't sufficiently written. I think that would be the answer. So let me ask you then, what assurances do you have or need so that USAID's on-the-ground expertise, which is, I think, what you were re just referring to, informs the development objectives incorporated into each project proposal the DFC board considers? So I understand that as the legislation has been moving, there's been the addition of a chief development officer, as I understand. Uh, we think that's great. We think that's a, a useful um, innovation in the legislation. Uh, we would encourage that to be a USAID uh, employee, someone that comes from USAID, so that we have a direct linkage that allows us to help create that, that uh, pipeline and, and, and bring that knowledge to bear. So um, uh, that's what I would urge, I guess. Mm -hmm. Let me turn to a different topic. It's come to my attention that the State Department's Office of Foreign Assistance Resources, otherwise known as the FBRO, 
is withholding the approval of FY17 operation plans and spend plans for several USAID programs. These are programs that Congress has appropriated funds for FY17, and the F-Bureau delayed obligating to USAID only later to offer some of the funds in the administration's rescission package. Can you explain to the committee the extent to which the State Department's Foreign Assistance Bureau delayed the obligation of FY17 funds and how that's affected your ability to lead USAID? Senator, the F process is one that I uh, believe um, has been pointed to across numerous administrations. We would like to find ways, as I believe State would as well, to streamline the process and make it more efficient. Um, it, it certainly is in need of strengthening and uh, streamlining. So in other words, I would take that answer to suggest that you didn't get the monies that were appropriated by Congress in a timely fashion that would have allowed you to pursue the specific missions that Congress intended you to pursue by virtue of those appropriations. We are constantly talking with F Bureau as well as OMB to help move things along. We'll mobilize resources as quickly as we get them. Do you believe any of, no, if I wish. Do you believe any of these delays may be related to policy or political disagreements with congressionally mandated programs? I have seen no evidence of that, Senator. What are you doing as administrator to ensure that the funds appropriated by Congress are moving quickly to the missions in order that we can make lives better, which is what our focus here is? We engage all the time with our counterparts at OMB and at State uh, and are in constant touch every other week I am with our mission directors around the world to try to provide predictability and to move those uh, resources along. We understand that USAID and OMB support a consolidation of the State Department's humanitarian component into USAID. Is that true? I would say that's an overstatement. Um, What's the I appropriate think, statement? Uh, I, at this point, I believe that uh, State, OMB, and USAID are looking at ways, uh, are, are re-examining ways to strengthen our humanitarian response given that so many of our humanitarian challenges these days are cross-border. Burma and Bangladesh is a prime example. The Rohingya in Burma are IDPs and therefore, in theory, uh, part of our portfolio when they cross the border into Bangladesh, they are refugees, therefore state programs, although we provide humanitarian support in some ways. So it's looking to uh, strengthen and, and make um, uh, more seamless those operations. That's what we're talking about. The, the last question, do you believe it would serve our broader foreign policy objectives to move refugee operations into USAID? I, I think there are a number of choices that we should look at uh, in making seamless the relationship between our refugee operations and our IDP operations. I think there are a range of, of options that are there that we're looking at and talking with, well, uh, talking gonna, to state about. I'm going to follow up with a series of detailed questions. I hope you'll give some responsive answers to it. And if I don't get them, then what we do moving forward is going to be affected by uh, what type of answers I get. Thank you. Senator Cardin, and I, I'm glad to have some more questions. We didn't anticipate uh, a second round. We. Um, I know waited for a while uh, for people to come, so, um, and I don't think we ought to have votes during hearings, I agree, and I'm gonna object to that in the future. 
but I'm going to probably call the meeting about 5 till 12, and I'm glad to hear some, have some more questions. Senator Cardin. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Administrator Green, thank you. Uh, I very much appreciate your leadership. Uh, I just want to make a point about how desperately needed your leadership is to counter the budgetary anemia of the administration as it relates to these programs and the message being sent to the international community on so many issues. Today is World Refugee Day. The United Nations has released its numbers, their record numbers. 65 million people are displaced, over 22 million refugees, 2 million, almost 2 million asylum seekers. And then the President of the United States reduces the cap on the United States accepting refugees and doesn't even hit those cap numbers. And we're about 83% below where we were um, uh, just two years ago. So we're not taking in the refugees. The administration's budget, we cut humanitarian assistance. You mentioned the Rohingya, which are in desperate need during the monsoon season of help. And if the United States is not in the leadership, the world will not respond. They're already responding too slowly. So I want to hear your game plan as our number one advocate for U.S. humanitarian needs globally and our responsibility as it relates to these vulnerable populations within country and those that have been forced to leave the country. What's your game plan here? How's the United States going to respond to this international crisis? Thank you, Senator. And uh, you know from our discussions, I share many of the concerns that you've raised. So uh, important to remind everyone, we are far and away the largest donor on humanitarian assistance and refugees in the world. Far and away. So as you know, there's been me? suggestions made by this administration to take some of that, those monies and put it into a wall. Well, we are currently uh, providing 49% of all the humanitarian assistance in the world. On the global health side, we are 60% of, uh, of all the funding in the world. And so we are, I think, providing significant leadership. And, and I, I acknowledge that, and I said the administration is trying to change that. But when you look at the impact of refugees to countries, we have a minimal impact here compared to what's happening in the countries that border Syria. Jordan, 750 refugees they've taken in. Lebanon, 1 million. 750,000, excuse me. Thank you. For, uh, and uh, Jordan taking, um, and Lebanon taking in a million. And, and we don't hit our, so yes, we've, we've written a check which is important, and the total pie is not adequate enough. So we don't have enough global money to deal with this. We've written a fair check. Don't deny that. We haven't taken in our fair number. I don't think anyone could dispute that, that looks at these numbers globally and see how much the United States of America, the most capable country of receiving refugees, how many we're taking in. So continue. I would also, again, I don't disagree with your numbers. I would also point out, as I indicated in my opening testimony, that these same challenges are close to home. In Venezuela, last numbers I saw, 5,000 Venezuelans per day fleeing the country. 
We've been providing assistance, bilateral assistance in Colombia and Brazil to help uh, support the Venezuelans who have gone there as well as to support the communities around them. We're starting to hear that the flight of Venezuelans is being felt in the Caribbean. Uh, concerns that I heard when I was down at the summit, these are significant challenges, absolutely. We'll make the money go as far as we possibly can. I can't tell you it's all the money that um, anyone needs to take on all of these challenges. And uh, again, I, my comments are not directed at you, but my frustration about the Trump administration and where we are globally today and the just absolute need for U.S. leadership here. And I just want you to know you have friends on both sides of the aisle that are with you and we'll do everything we can that you have the tools you need in order to be able to adequately respond to challenges imposed globally and by the Trump administration's policies. Thank you, Senator Keynes. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Menendez, um, Administrator Green. I, I just wanted to speak just a little bit further, if I could, to the Build Act. Uh, I think the Ranking Member has raised uh, real and legitimate concerns and questions. You have raised real legitimate questions about how do we ensure uh, that this new development finance institution, if it is stood up, is focused on development. Um, and so, you know, first, um, the Obama Global Development Council uh, actually recommended that the Development Credit Authority be folded into OPIC in order to give it access to resources. Your concern, your concern that it be led by USAID on the ground, that it be connected to development, I think um, is not just a legitimate concern, but one that I embrace. So to the extent I have anything to do with this going forward, um, the fact that the USAID administrator will be the vice chair of the board, the fact that the legislation now has an outside development advisory board, I think a needed improvement to it, uh, and the fact that the language now provides for a forward transfer of policies from OPIC, which will address a number of concerns about uh, human rights, environmental, labor, small business concerns, uh, I think have all improved the bill. Um, to the extent as an appropriator and authorizer, uh, I have anything to do with this issue going forward, um, I'll pledge to you both that I'll continue to work tirelessly to ensure that in its implementation, should this become law, um, USAID will not just be occasionally consulted, but be driving the development focus of its work uh, and take action, if appropriate, if it is not being implemented appropriately. Um, and just wanted to say that because I think the ranking member has raised um, good and legitimate points, and I know you too, not to speak for you, um, have had similar concerns, and I think they're legitimate, and I think we should work together to make sure that this is carried forward as a development finance institution. Senator, I look forward to working with you. Your passion for development is clear and uh, longstanding, and I am a big supporter of the concept of a DFI. I think it is good for us to get additional resources into the system, and anything that helps us to catalyze investments for development outcome, that's a good thing. And, and it is not the answer to uh, all of the challenges we see from the alternative model to development, but it doesn't hurt either. It's certainly a step in the right direction, so I look forward to continuing our conversation and really appreciate it. Um, thank you. At the risk of saying one more thing, I don't need to. Um, but in my questioning of you, in my public statements, in my actions on appropriations, um, I reject um, the current administration's approach to deeply cutting USAID funding and think that sustained, broad, bipartisan investments in development are the best path forward. 
and I think in combination, a robust DFI and a strong and capable USAID is our best path, and I hope to contribute to that in some small way. Thank you. Look, I, I think we all understand the reason um, cuts are made as shown is that the real drivers of our deficit are not uh, willing to be dealt with, and we know that, and I, they, don't, they don't expect any of this to become law. It's just a way of acting like uh, uh, we're doing things fiscally responsible. Senator Kane. Thank you. Uh, and Administrator Green, just a comment. Uh, I'm on the Armed Services Committee, and one of the things I do on that committee is listen to our defense leaders as they advocate for you. Um, the SECDEF and others two years ago in the FY17 NDAA supported an effort that was successful to include in the NDAA the ability of the DOD to transfer funds to USAID and state for sort of post-conflict stabilization activities and countering violent extremism activities if the DOD determines that the best folks to do it are not the military but state or USAID. And we, we were able to get that authority and at the request of the SECDEF. My understanding is that has not yet been used, but it's there to be used. Uh, and I would encourage you to dialogue with the Secretary about that. The NDAA that we passed off the Senate floor last night, which is in conference with the House, uh, has an additional authority. It would allow the DOD to provide logistical support for USAID or State Department operations in Afghanistan, Syria, and Iraq. Again, in the, in the aftermath of, say, the defeat of ISIS on the battlefield or the defeat of Taliban in some part of Afghanistan, if there's a need for post-conflict stabilization activities, we know and the, and the DOD will acknowledge that they're sometimes not the best at doing that and that you all have the expertise and are able to do it, but they may need to provide logistical support to allow that to be done. That authority was included in the NDA version that we passed off the Senate floor last night, and I think it will survive the conference because I believe there's something similar on the House side. But just to let you know that there are these two authorities within the DOD budget uh, that would enable them to provide support uh, to your uh, efforts, especially in uh, former war zones that are, we're trying to restabilize, and I would just encourage you to be in dialogue with the SECDEF's office about that. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Listen, we, uh, we thank you for being here. I know it's been a little unorthodox, um, but I, I think you can tell by the questions, people care deeply about what you do and what we do as a nation in this regard. So we thank you for your service. We're gonna keep the record open until the close of business on Friday. If you could respond to questions fairly promptly, uh, we would appreciate that. Again, thank you for your service. Without further questions, um, meeting is adjourned.